Thanks for joining us for our series on the gospel and its ramifications for church life. These messages work through the heart of the gospel within the overall story of God and then deal with several outcomes of this good news in Jesus. How he creates a new people for God by his spirit, defines and upholds their identity through baptism and communion, and sends them as ministers of reconciliation to the world as foretastes of God's coming kingdom. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Good morning, everyone. Let's turn to Matthew 18. We praise the Lord for um, dent removal nerds, right? It's pretty awesome. Um, Seth, in the, in the first service, talked about being, you know, car mechanic nerd too, loving that. What, what, a, what a cool opportunity to serve actually with our hands, doing some of the restorative work uh, that so much shows how our God continues to work. So it's a good thing. Uh, for those who are visiting, welcome. We're so glad to have you guys. Um, we're so glad to worship together, or at least visit today with us. Um, I don't apologize for the sermon, but I feel a little bit bad that you're dropping right into this topic today without any context. Um, today, we are going to be with probably, hopefully with the rest of the congregational, congregation, we'll have at least a little bit of context, but we're going to be talking about the difficult and potentially offensive teaching of our Lord in the area of a sinning brother. We're going to talk about uh, church discipline. So we'll be talking about that. And don't worry, we're not excommunicating anyone today, um, but rather teaching on the subject when things are good. So we can at least get this out and actually have the conversation and teach through what the scriptures say, not be pulled around by when the time comes and we're like, uh, I don't really want to do this. Because I'll guarantee you when we get into this stuff, you're like, do we really have to do that? So we need to think about it with clear heads and obedient hearts, willing to trust God in these areas and to follow him. Uh, I would be lying if I said that this uh, is a normal and comfortable sermon for me uh, to prepare and deliver. Uh, it is not. Much of the content is difficult and severe. Um, when we're talking about this, we realize that the one who gave us himself on the cross and rescued us from the wrath of God is the one who gave us this command to love one another to the point that we are participating in rescuing sinners, to the point that we are participating in chastening his children. We are participating in purifying his church and bringing glory to God alone. Now, uh, you, may, you and I may not like this, but our likes and dislikes um, don't free us from the absolute necessity of obeying our Lord. Our allegiance is to our king, not to our feelings or ideas or emotions um, the thing that will seem to work out best in our situation. We must trust our God who made us and redeemed us. So with this reminder, let's read Matthew 18, 15 through 20, uh, and listen to the words of Jesus. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the gift of yourself. You are all satisfying. You're the only true bread and the living water. There is no one like you. And we come to your word today together asking you to work on us. We want to be the church. We, we want to live out our true identity in Christ and we want to love one another. So we ask that you would cause our love for you and for each other to abound more and more, like Paul tells us, with knowledge and discernment, Lord. Give us discernment. We ask that you would help us to approve what's excellent. And in this, you would mature us, making us pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Lord, would you fill us with the fruit of righteousness that comes only through Jesus Christ? And may all this then be done to the glory and praise of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Before we jump right into this text, uh, I think we need to give ourselves a little bit bigger picture of the context of what's going on. Not specifically about Matthew, but I mean the New Testament church. This is not a sermon about a process. Not really. My goal is not for you to get the process of church discipline down so you get that right on the test later on. There will be a test. Just kidding. My goal is not mainly to give you all the different steps so that you sometimes can get out of here and say, okay, we know step one, two, three, and four of how to do church discipline. It's often assumed, and maybe it's, I've just grown up thinking this or hearing this, it's been taught to me, that you turn to Matthew 18 when there's a big sin problem in the church, and you work it out, and that's the way that you do it. We follow it, you do it, it's going to come out right. Just follow these simple steps, and you'll end up with the correct results. Almost like a formula, or almost like a recipe. If you do these things, you get the right thing. Um, and we certainly do have some steps here. There certainly is a, a process, in a sense, a very helpful direction, stages that we should follow and understand how to go about this. But it isn't as easy as turning to Matthew 18 when we have a big sin problem in the church. The passage is very clear, and it's very helpful for us, but it doesn't explain everything. It doesn't give us every situation. It doesn't tell us exactly what to do in every single instance. It instead is a little bit more general and helping us to understand why would we be doing this and really it starts to point out who we are. The subject requires, when we tackle this, discernment, great wisdom. We prayed for this very thing. Love, humility, all these things that actually come only from the Spirit's work in us. This is the way that we have to go about this. These are personal, sensitive issues, confrontation, not a lot of our favorite thing to do, but this is what we're seeing here. So the mark here is of true love for one another, which we know from last week is the mark of true discipleship, what a Christian actually is, willing to love one another like Christ loved his disciples. This is not a sermon to educate you about the Cornerstone's method of church discipline. You will inevitably see some of the different stuff worked out and how it would look, but that's not the goal here. As we've worked through this series that we've been working through, it's, it's been a time to see and to, to reveal the beauty of the gospel, of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done in you and me, and how that makes us a person within the corporate body, the, the body of Christ, the church. It's a place to see the glory of Christ's work in each of us as we are joined together as one. And it shows what it means for us to actually work out our salvation in this church. 
And when we talk about baptism or the Lord's Supper or church membership or church discipline, we're equipping the body with the truth of our corporate identity in Christ. As modern American Christians, we often drift to think about our own personal relationship with the Lord. Uh, that's fine. That's right. But sometimes it's to the neglect of how important, God-given importance, how important it is for us to consider the relationship that we have one to another. We're not individual thumbs or ears or elbows attached to the head Jesus Christ. That's not the analogy. We are part of the body each given for the mutual edification of the others. That's his design. That's not like a secondary, like, well, we got to figure this out. We'll come up with an analogy that works. This was his design, that we are to play a part in this body. Therefore, when we come to our topic today, we are going to see the importance of the body working together to build itself up in love. We heard this from Ephesians 4. And it may be surprising, but today's exhortation about confronting sin in one another's lives is an outflow of true Christian community. Last two weeks, we've been talking about what is Christian community. And we understood from John 13 especially, it is love for one another. And the standard of that love is Jesus' love for his people. And that's the love we're supposed to have. So when we talk about church discipline or all these different things, confronting sin, it's actually coming out of a heart of love one that would be willing to give itself for another. Last week, we gave three simple takeaways or applications from our understanding of Christian community, and we suggested that by doing one another's spiritual good, we could simply and powerfully, this could be done through Bible reading together, through praying for and with one another, and sharing our lives with one another. And Christian community then, the, the act of pursuing maturity in Christ together with the church family, is, 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 is a kind of obeying God to the point that he uses us as a means of blessing and grace to one another. Uh, our our faith-filled and spirit-empowered actions, our obedience and love for our Savior and for one another, get this, it acts as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable that he would put that task in our hands to work out our sanctification in this body. The community is consistently working to build one another up in love. We saw this in Ephesians 4. But if we're all honest, there's just some times where we just really don't want to be built up at all. Or we don't really want to build anyone else up. Or, if we're really honest, we just really don't love God with our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And we don't really want to. What then? How should we respond? Like, what should we be doing about that? And in our context, more importantly, as we think about this together, how should we respond to that? What should the church do when its members begin to grow cold? And we notice that there's sin in another person's life. What is the role of the Christian community, the church, when a brother or sister sins? Now, I think that we could probably come up with some good ideas. We get some ideas here and what it's supposed to look like. It'd be pretty easy to say, yeah, that's, that's a bad thing to have sin in someone's life, so we, we, we shouldn't have that. That's, that sounds like we should get rid of it or something. We should probably do something about this. But oftentimes, we don't take it too seriously unless it's some sort of egregious public sin, right? 
But left to our own wisdom and our own tolerance and our own emotions, and I'll just be frank, our own cowardice, we would probably just let another person deal with their sin personally and just let that thumb connect to the head and make sure that they work it out. Let the person deal with their sin personally. The problem is that that is not the way that Jesus tells us to handle this. It's not right. See, there's something here that you and I don't take seriously. The love of God for his children and his willingness to pursue them. In the verses leading up to our passage, there's a beautiful little parable. In verses 10 through 14, it's the parable of the lost sheep. In this parable, we learn that when God's sheep wander, he pursues them. That is who he is. He's not indifferent. He's not nonchalant about it. Um, he loves them. His heart and his will is to rescue and restore his sheep. Uh, he's not like, well, it's just up to you. You know, um, it's your choice. You can either come back, you know, leave my fold if you want to. That's okay. He's like, uh, you know, I I'm not going to twist your arm. I'm not going to make you my sheep. You know, just, it's your choice. You know, if you want to come back to safety of the fold, it's a good thing to come back, but I have really no power to, to do that. No. Do you see what the Father does? His will is to take his sheep and bring them back. Do you see that the Father's love for the sheep is so apparent here? And we may say, right? We may say, yeah, but Chris, I'm not the Father. I'm not Jesus. I don't even know which sheep are his and which sheep aren't. Right. You and I don't know. I know that. We can't see the Father. We cannot physically see Jesus walking alongside of us. So how in the world do we know which sheep are his and which ones aren't? There's a simple answer to this. We don't. We don't know. I can't look at your hearts right now, and you can't look at mine, and tell if I'm trying to pull the wool over your eyes. I'm trying to trick you somehow. You have no idea. I have no idea. We don't know. It's not our job, though, to elect, to choose, to give life to sustain life, and to deliver a person from their sin. That's Jesus' job, not ours. However, this does not mean that we throw our hands up and just hope that every wandering sheep will eventually make it back to the joyous and loving fold of the Good Shepherd. Amazingly, we've already talked about this, right? Amazingly, the Lord has designed the church in such a way that he graciously uses Get that word. He graciously uses redeemed saints to participate in this process of sanctification, of calling people back. Amazingly, he calls you and me to chase after wandering sheep. He calls us, the church body, to love one another like he loves us. And here, we're learning that he commands a love that is willing to do search and rescue missions for his sheep that have wandered. With faith in God, knowing that he's sovereign, trusting him alone, knowing the power is his alone, we trust him to save who he wills, and we obediently and graciously and lovingly as we can carry out the commands he's given to us with joy. That's Christian obedience, fully trusting him, but obeying with a joyous heart. This is the context of our passage. It's, it's this parable of the lost sheep. Um, that, that we, get to, we get instruction on how we ought to love one another through rebuke and confrontation for the sake of love and bringing our brothers back. So the context is set. Uh, God loves, pursues, 
and chastens his people. They are precious to him. He's willing to leave those 99 to go get the one. Like that's supposed to tell us the heart behind this. He loves and is willing to go chasten. They are precious and he will have them. He will not lose one. It is a context of loving concern and committed rescuing. Paul will later say, Caleb already read it for us in Galatians 6, 1, he'll say, brothers, if anyone is caught up in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This whole idea is not vindictive or somehow about public shaming or something like that. This is a process whereby we act out of love for our brothers and sisters. So love, care, gentleness is the way that we are going about this. For today, what we're going to do is just look at 15 through 17. Next week, we're going to come back and look at 18 through 20. We have a little bit different focus next week. But to this, today, we'll just cover these three verses and then jump to 1 Corinthians 5 and read the whole thing. So I think it's very instructive for us. Let's look at verse 15 here in Matthew 18. Though. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So uh, we've got a brother here. That's a Christian. That's a very specific term here. Who has sinned. Now, several of you have looked there, but you say it sinned against you. What about that against you? Doesn't that make it like a personal vendetta right between someone else? Did someone get abused or did someone get slandered? What is that about specifically? This is not just if someone had done something particularly to only one other person. Like it's like one individual against another, like slander or something like that. This little phrase, against you, has a whole lot of, uh, if I can say it this way, a whole host of different problems in the original languages. Some would say that this actually in the earliest manuscripts did not, did not occur, and that's actually verifiable. So you're like, how did it get placed in here? Other manuscripts have it. So you have that idea, you've probably heard me talk about textual criticism before. That's not about ripping the Bible down, that's about making sure we do our best to understand the original text and use that. So even in that, there's a little discrepancy here. But we do not have anything to be concerned about because Luke 17.3 gives us the answer here. It shows us very simply that it's not just about sinning against one other person. You have something to work out between the two of you. In Luke 17.3, Jesus says this, if your brother sins, rebuke him. He doesn't say if he sins against you. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So if we, even if we had a narrowing in Matthew 18, we understand it's actually far broader than that. And the point here is if you notice that your brother is in sin in some way and you understand that they are not repentant, you're to go to him. This is about a sin that's noticed. And Jesus is saying that if a Christian notices another brother sinning, he should, listen to this, go alone privately and confront his brother about the sin that he sees in his life. This guards against gossip or backstabbing or rumor spreading throughout and saying, let's have this prayer request time where I tell you about the sin of another person. None of that. That's, that's wicked. That's a totally different sin. This is talking about going to that brother alone when no one else is around saying, hey, can I give you a call? Hey, could we, could we meet for breakfast? I see this thing in your life and confronting that sin graciously in love, also thinking the best of another and asking, this is what I see. Is this true? I, I want to make sure that this, if this is sin, we need to talk about it. and It's not right. This is a simple act of lovingly, privately pulling a person aside and telling them about their sin. Back to the rest of verse 15. He says, if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. I mean, this is a glorious response. This is what we want every single time. This is if a Christian listens, meaning if the Christian acknowledges, and oh, 
I need to repent, and truly repents of his sin, responds, then you have gained a brother. Meaning, just like, remember the, the context here, the lost sheep, you found him. He has come back now to the fold, that you should rejoice. This is a good thing. You've gained a brother, and we ought to rejoice. This is really that daily participation of Christian community that we continue to talk about. We talked about reading the Bible together, praying together, sharing together. This is kind of in that realm. Like we're willing to share with one another what's going on. And willing, even when we see, because we see other places in the scriptures talk about rebuking one another. When we see those things, willing to confront and say, brother or sister, this is wrong. This is sin against God. It's bad for you, and it's bad for everyone around you, and you have kind of defamed the name of God if you continue in this sin. So repent. This is not a good spot for you to be in. This is the daily participation that we need to be involved in. We don't, we don't want to really go down to the next two or three steps here. We want to see this work and love one another in these very simple but difficult ways where we're willing to go and confront another about their sin. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here we have, it's beginning to become a little bit more uncomfortable. We're involving more people. We're asking one or two different people to come along. They will know about the sin now. They may have known before, but now they will definitely know about the sin. And so they, they act as witnesses to this. And together, if they hear this and the person says, yeah, I mean, I did that thing, but I don't think it's a sin. And these other two know from Scripture that this is sin. They as well then, now in a little company, say, brother or sister, this is sin. Repent. Turn. Come back. What you're doing is not right. And so for that person, they have now two or three people either standing or sitting with them and saying, we love you. Don't do this thing. Turn away from it. The other thing that's involved here is actually very interesting. God is concerned about justice for the one that's accused as well. Notice that the purpose, one of the purposes here is to bring along others so that they are witnesses of what's going on. And so that they can stand and make sure that they're not a false accusation against this person. And so in the day that if in the event that they have to tell it to the church, it's not just one person's word saying, I told them. Now it's two or three that says, we did tell them. We asked them to repent and they decided not to. And so you actually see God actually, he is protecting the accused as well. Because certainly we don't want a false accusation. Consider the hurt from that and then bring it before the church. My goodness, none of us would want that. And so we see here that God is concerned actually for in all ways to love one another and the dignity even of the one that's accused. It's supposed to be first private and then told over here so that there's actual evidence to make sure they understand that this is what's happening and everyone's on the same page. However, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If the sinner is still not willing to acknowledge or repent of the sin after these confrontations, then the matter must be brought to the church. It must be told to the church. I mean, all of us kind of as like individual modern day Americans are like, for what reason? Like, really? Like, like this public shaming? Is this biblical justification for like the scarlet letter being placed on a sinner so that many could deride and look down on this person? Absolutely not. That is not the goal in this. This is not a public shaming. And I'll say one more thing. I don't think that church discipline should ever be in any sort of a public arena. 
it should almost always be done within the context of those members who have covenanted together and said, this is our body. It should not be for anyone and everyone who can join in on this thing. This is confronting as the church with that person. It's difficult, but this is not public shaming. The sin is to be told to the church. So the question still is, why? So that the church, the whole group of those who have joined together as the body of Christ, can look to a brother or sister and tell them the same things they've heard in the first two conversations. But now it's heightened again. And now we're bringing with us the whole congregation that looks at the scriptures and says, this is what it says. What you're doing is not right. Repent and turn to Christ. Now the sinner receives the love and confrontation of the whole church, a formidable authority under the authority of Jesus Christ. And so we see here this is a sobering interaction, a place really where none of us want to be. We don't, on either side, none of us want to be in the place of discipline. None of us want to be on the other side actually carrying this thing out. It's uncomfortable. It's personal. It feels like a huge attack on a person, but that's not true. This is not an attack. This is not public shaming. In a spirit of gentleness and love, the church is to call a brother or sister to come back, to repent of their sin, and to know the loving forgiveness and grace that is found in Jesus Christ and his body, those that will love them like Christ loved them. And he says, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Even if this does not move the unrepentant sinner, if, if, that's, if, if the, even this won't, won't do it, you are to treat them as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, I'm a Gentile. Um, probably a lot of Gentiles in here, pretty sure. Um, and maybe some of you work for the IRS. Like, like tax collector, Gentile, like that's not very helpful reference for us, Paul. Like, could you help us out a little bit more here? I'll try to help us out. When he uses this term, he is referencing those people that are outside of the church, outside of, more specific, outside of the people of God, because Jews would have also used this term. They're understanding those that are not part of God's covenant people. Those ones, again, we're talking about the new covenant, but they're those that are outside of that covenant people. This is the people he's talking to, Gentiles and tax collectors. He's saying, treat them this way. These titles are making a distinction between those who accepted Christ and are willing to be numbered with his saints and everyone else. That, that's the line. He's saying that you are to treat them as a non-Christian, as an unbeliever. So our question is like, what does that exactly look like? Or what, what does that play out to, to, to be for our context? Before we do too many uh, jumps or think about this in a way in our own, turn to 1 Corinthians 5. It is here that we will learn even more about confronting sin. And Paul goes one step further to make it clear, not just to treat them as an unbeliever, but to remove them from the church. Let's read 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read the whole thing. I think it will be helpful for us. So stick with me. I know. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In the first two verses here, we see what's going on is there's a public knowledge already. I mean, it's been reported to Paul, so everyone knows this is going on, that there's sexual immorality in the church, that this man is sleeping with his mother-in-law. Paul writes to tell them to remove this person from among them. He is telling them to remove this brother from their congregation, from their church. Now, immediately, you and I want to know what in the world that looks like, and we'll find out. But at the very least, we're seeing that Paul is saying this person needs to be removed from among you. In verses 3 through 5, Paul says, listen, I know I'm not there in the flesh, but consider me there because I'm telling you something that should take that authority, that apostolic authority, and proclaim judgment on this man. When you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus, in other words, as the body of Christ, when you assemble, I am telling you to deliver this person over to Satan. Whoa! That is strong language, right? Like, that's serious stuff. Is that what he meant by removal? Handing him over to Satan? Yeah, exactly right. Let me explain the removal from the church He's placing this person, the church is now placing this person outside of the confines of the church, the body of Christ, and placing them into the realm of Satan, where he is the prince of the power of the air, under, in a sense, in a sense, his care, his control, where, where, where he is the prince. So why would we do this? Why in the world would the church do this? Why would you formally remove this person from the church? And Paul tells us, Get ready. It is for the destruction of the flesh. Again, that sounds terrible. Like, that's the purpose here. But we need to be careful that we don't stop the period right there. There's more to this sentence here. Look at the next phrase. The whole thing reads, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The end goal is actually salvation of this person in the last day. Now, we should ask ourselves a question here. Uh, is this an idea of like purgatory? Is that what's going on here? Like looking for destruction of the flesh, but salvation at the end of the day. Like the person was kind of saved, but not very repentant. So when they died, you know, they go into this state of purgatory. If they suffer long enough, they eventually will be saved in the last day when the Lord comes. No, definitely not. That is not what's being taught here at all. For a moment, we need to consider how Paul uses the word flesh. Now, you and I, obviously, we have an idea of what this means, but we need to think about how Paul thinks about it. Paul describes this as our old man, the one who loves to sit on the throne of our hearts and have full control, not Jesus. 
Paul uses flesh to represent what happens when our innermost desires, what we want, pleases ourself instead of pleasing King Jesus. That's what he's talking about when he talks about flesh. In Romans 8 9, he says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Paul means to refer to us in accordance with the first Adam. Like that's the flesh. Everyone operates in the flesh. But in the Spirit's work, in Christ taking in the second Adam, we have one who now has brought us under the control of a different and better and perfect king. And this is what he speaks to, one who we submit to joyfully, and his kingship both covers our sin and makes us whole in Christ, and we with him now have inheritance. Paul means to refer to this. He's not talking about removing this person to eventually die physically and his hopes that somewhere in purgatory that they, they make it out and they make it on the other side well. No. Paul is saying, remove this person from the church into the horrible care of Satan so that eventually this person will wise up and realize that Satan does not want anything but the destruction of them. He's saying, in that realm, hopefully, I'm asking him, hopefully that the destruction of their flesh, they would realize to come back and live in the spirit and trust the real king, turn in repentance, and no longer live according to the flesh, but to the spirit, down with the flesh, the life we have in Adam first. No, 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 no. The desire here, what Paul is saying, is to remove this person so that it would bring them to repentance and true life in the Spirit. Paul is saying that the purpose of excommunication is the person's restoration, their salvation. What's on the line here, guys? Ultimate destiny. Where are they going? What's happening? Paul is saying this is about their ultimate salvation. Paul wants this one for Christ, not for Satan. Paul, just like Jesus, desires that this person would be saved, would be restored to fellowship, growing and happy in God. And we read it before, but in Galatians 6.1, I don't know if you caught up on this, we talked about like the, the gentleness side, but this is what he says. We realize that Paul's goal is for someone who's sinning to be restored. His whole point is if someone's in transgression, restore them. Not like do the public shaming thing and get them out on the street and get away from them. His whole point is to bring them back with gentleness to be restored to true salvation in his God. Then in verses 6 through 8, Paul points out that this sin amongst us is like leaven in a lump of dough. He uses the analogy to show us that this is not God's design for his church. The lump is to be unleavened, pure, the Passover lamb has finally come. Christ is here. There is to be no unrepentant sin amongst us. And there is to be no unregenerate people amongst us. The church is to be pure. One that is made up of true regenerate people, true Christians. We say this about when we talk about membership, a true or credible profession of faith. I can't tell but from all signs and to hear the truth spoken as we sit down and talk about your salvation, a credible profession of faith in Christ alone. But now what we're seeing here is a life that must be backed up, that that truly has happened. And so we recognize this is for the good of God's purity of his church. The lump is to be pure. There's much to talk about in this sense, but as we move on, look at verse 9 through 13. We get a clearer picture 
of who and what we are talking about. The situation makes it clear in this sense, right? Who's the person that needs to be pulled out of the church? Everyone knows this person. It's not like a, it's not like a problem. They're like, which person are we supposed to do? They know exactly. But in these last couple of verses, Paul is going to now instruct. And he's going to explain what I mean by this. In verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexual immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. Like he's saying, I'm not asking you to dissociate yourself from unrepentant sinful people in general at all. That would be the whole world. Instead, he says in verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat such a one. Paul is saying this, don't associate or fellowship with one who has publicly borne the name brother, those who have taken the name and responsibilities of being in Jesus Christ and his church. In our context, he is saying, you ought to be applying this discipline to those who are willing to be the members of the church. Later on, he is going to call them insiders versus those that are outsiders. Those who have been baptized, who have committed themselves to the care and authority of the church and are not ashamed to call themselves and be named with the brothers. These are the ones that are to be disciplined. When these ones are guilty of sexual immorality, greed, etc., the list is large. It's kind of, it's not comprehensive. It's meant to stand out as these apparent sins. When that's true, the church should not associate with these people. In fact, they should not even eat with them. And here, Paul is giving us a clear command to make sure that there is a distinction between the Christian who has joined Christ's church and lives, not perfect, but lives according to repentance and faith. There should be a difference between that one and the person that is on the outside, who is unrepentant, who is unbelieving. There's difference between a truly regenerate person and someone who does not know God. Paul even throws this idea of eating together as a common way to associate with a person, right? The idea here is that when the church interacts with this person, they should evangelize them, they should call them to repentance, they should love them like they love the world or their neighbor, obviously, but they should not act as though everything is totally fine and as though they're just a regular member of God's church. That's not true. In fact, they have vehemently said, no, I will not repent. I'm not listening to what God has said here. And so they have, in a way, removed themselves because they know the scriptures to be true. And so as the believers are to interact with them, it's not to be like, hey, everything's totally cool. We're just going to go on as though everything is totally fine. And there's another aspect here that's assumed, but it's very important for us. This type of unrepentant sin would automatically disqualify someone from partaking in the Lord's Supper. According to 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, someone who is not discerning the blood and body of the Lord ought not be permitted to the Lord's table. Someone in, in known unrepentant sin is not discerning the body of Christ. By that we mean both the body of Christ, I mean like the church, and also the body and blood of Jesus Christ himself. In other words, understanding joyful submission to Christ and his law. And therefore, the unrepentant sinner must be kept from participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. It brings no glory to God and does not show the truth. Look at verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
God judges those outside. Perch the evil person from among you. Paul's reminding us that, unless someone else can tell me about this, Paul's reminding us that we don't get some sort of holy bulletin that comes down in a cloud to tell us what we ought to do and who we ought to, you know, to discipline and not, who we should judge and who we should not do. God judges all, but in the context of drawing lines and distinctions and helping us understand who we ought to call brother and who we ought to call out their sin, God says that we are to confront and judge those who are inside the church, members of the body of Christ. Paul is concerned that the church purge evil persons from among them. In other words, Paul knows, he knows how divisive and cancerous a person who does not submit to Christ is for the church. It is like leaven that spreads throughout the lump so easily. The desire is that this person, though, would be restored. Not for the sake of like, like, he's just a bad egg, just get him out of here. That's not the idea here. We want to restore that one to a repentant person of faith. You can call a bad egg as much as you want to. If Christ did save this person, we praise the Lord and he makes bad eggs into those that are actually ones that receive his inheritance. Praise God. That's us, actually. All bad eggs. That's not the point here to just get the bad eggs out. The point is if there's unrepentant sin, we are to remove that from our midst because we know otherwise that it goes right throughout the whole body of Christ, throughout the whole church. We want this person to repent and believe the truth and joyfully submit to our king. But if they will not, it is best for their sake and for the congregation's sake for them to be removed. Now, I'm not sure about you, but when I get to the end of these texts, I just don't really like them that much. <laughs> this is not my favorite stuff to work through. Um, I felt like it was just a, a long, heavy week to try to work through this stuff. Um, it's hard to obey an invisible God, right? Like, like we, don't, we don't see him. We, we don't walk along with Jesus as we can see him and touch him, feel him. We want to, um, but we don't. So it's hard when his words say things that are so hard because we have to look at someone straight in the eye and we can actually reach out and touch their hand and we have to tell that person something that we don't like to tell them and they don't want to hear. And yet he calls us to obey him. It's hard to trust him in these ways. Obeying Jesus' words when he isn't here to look on us and help us and work with us feels removed. It feels distant. But we just can't treat his words with contempt. We have to remember that he has given us his word. It tells us both his heart and what he has for us to do and how we ought to obey. That's why we go about expositional preaching. Well, we open up the scripture and say, we need to be taught by them. We need to hear God's word for us. Otherwise, we're left to our own devices, our own wisdom, our own tolerance, our own cowardice. This is not what he calls us to. In all of this, I have four words of application for you, four, four thoughts. What should we learn as we desire, we hear God's desire for the body of Christ to be sacred, holy, and pure, as Christ cares about his body uh, and does this. What, what are we supposed to do about this? The first thing is just simple. We ought to recognize and understand and believe that the body of Christ is a sacred, holy, pure church. He saved it not to be littered about with a bunch of unleavened. That sounds harsh. I get it. That does not mean that we are sinless. We already talked about this. That's not the point here. Each of us represents probably difficult stories, some of complete rebellion against God, and continued struggles with rebellion and repentance, rebellion and repentance, and rebellion and repentance. 
That's not the point here that we'd have a perfect, sinless group. Praise God, he continues to work in us. It is the point that he cares dearly that his church is pure. There should be no unrepentant sin. And there should not be unregenerate people inside of the church. They are not believers. And they obviously won't repent. They obviously won't be in line with what God says to do. And so we must recognize that his church is pure. Number two, let us be ready and willing with love to tell one another when there is sin in each other's lives. This is the hard work of being willing to do the stuff that we don't want to do. Because it's easier to tolerate, or just to hope it gets worked out over here. Like I was praying really hard again, and for that to have work out, I don't want to actually get to go and get my hands dirty, because that's like really uncomfortable, and they might not like it. We must be willing to do what he has called us to do. This happens in the little ways, these first steps of Matthew 18, to the big stuff, and we have to bring a believer among us and remove him. This is difficult and uncomfortable, but it is for the sake of the brother's soul and for the purity of the church. So let us be ready and willing to act in love. Number three is the flip side. Be willing to hear. Be willing when someone comes to you and say, hey, brother or sister, is this true? It looks like you have bitterness in your life. The way that you respond is just constantly harsh towards this person. Or I've noticed the way that you, you, know, you talk about this or that. It sounds like there's lust or maybe pride in your life or whatever the sin is. We ought to be willing to hear that. It's not going to be fun to hear that, guys. But we need to be ready to hear that with a heart of humility. And I'll say one more thing. Eventually, when you get past it and you realize you're sinful, with thanksgiving. We thank our brother and sister for coming alongside and participating in the action of saving and rescuing sinners. Because that's what's... We, we play it off like it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. Our sin against God is a big deal. We want to be pure. I'm not saying perfect and sinless. Uh, recognize that. But continually marked by repentance and faith and trusting God alone. So be willing to hear that. Humble yourself and be thankful that a brother or sister would care enough to chase after your wandering soul. Fourthly, praise God. Let us be thankful for a good shepherd whose heart and will is to rescue wandering sheep. That's us. That's all of us. And it's his heart to come after and to rescue those who are wandering we could probably each tell our own stories about different times or multiple times that we've wandered away or just continue in unrepentant sin. Praise God for, the, for his love that we don't deserve, that he cares deeply enough that he would continue to pursue and have his own. What a loving and good shepherd. Praise God for his mercy and that he gives chase to his, 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 his sheep. Love does not always feel good. If you're young and you don't know that, there it is. Love does not always feel good, but it always does what is best for the other. I'd like to finish up from the truths found in 1 Corinthians 13. We know it's the love chapter. I'm just going to read a couple verses. It is describing love for one another, but that also means it's describing love for one another, even in discipline. I'll read it. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let us love one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a chasing, loving, enduring shepherd who shows us true 1 Corinthians 13 love. He's never concerned about himself, always forbears with stupid sheep. We thank you for your great love and we praise your holy name. Would you make us a people of true repentance and faith, ones that are willing to throw ourselves to the mercy of God and give you all honor and glory for the work that you alone can do. Help us, Lord, as we recognize our need for confronting one another and to be confronted. And Lord, would you have glory in your church so that you would use it for the sake of the gospel to the nations, for your own glory proclaimed here in Virginia Beach. Lord, who knows where else you will do it, but I, I pray that you would use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.